Pence makes sense, Trump doesn't make sense, and get ready for election 2023 on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 405 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Found it difficult to catch my breath this week with so much happening. And for the Republican Party, mostly bad stuff. Not that it matters to his adoring fans, but Donald Trump has not helped his cause during one of his trials by constantly baiting the judge, who keeps imposing fines and gag orders on the ex-president. And for all the talk in the GOP about how senile Joe Biden is, there's always a Trumpism that makes us wonder whose brain needs to be examined. Like the time last week when Trump was campaigning in Sioux City, Iowa. A very big hello to a place where we've done very well, Sioux Falls. Thank you very much, Sioux Falls. So Sioux City, let me ask you, how many people come, how many people come from Sioux City? How many people? And who was responsible for the atrocities in Israel on October 7th? The Hamas, Hamas terrorist invasion. I mean, when you think about, and what do you think of Hamas? What do you think? Do you know about Hamas? Apparently, the world needs to be aware of that awful chickpea dip. And this, in the same speech where Trump said Biden was cognitively impaired, in no condition to lead. We have a man who is totally corrupt and the worst president in the history of our country, who is cognitively impaired, in no condition to lead, and is now in charge of dealing with Russia and possible nuclear war. Just think of it. We would be in World War II very quickly. I'm sure the fear of World War II is in the back of everyone's mind. It's worthwhile to mention that it's Joe Biden, who is 80, whom the public sees as too old and feeble to run for re-election, far more than the 77-year-old Trump. Democrats are more concerned about Biden's age than Republicans are about Trump's, that's understandable. At the same time, while Biden was in Israel trying to broker some kind of agreement regarding Gaza, and he was walking in the picket line in the UAW strike, Trump is making gaffe after gaffe while having to deal with 91 felony charges. Still, the more missteps and insane comments Trump makes, the more his supporters stay with him. That may or may not have been the reason Mike Pence ended his candidacy last Saturday. I was raised to believe that to whom much is given, much will be required. And with everything our country is facing, I just couldn't sit this one out. But the Bible tells us that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Traveling across the country over the past six months, I came here to say it's become clear to me this is not my time. So after much prayer and deliberation, 
I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Pence had been in an unenviable position since the moment he got into the race. An unquestioningly loyal vice president during Trump's time in office, Pence was somehow trying to get credit for ignoring his then-boss's demand that he not certify the 2020 election results on January 6, 2021, for following the law. Trump never forgave Pence for that and made it clear that he regarded his VP as a traitor. On the same day Pence ended his campaign, Trump had this to say at a rally. If you listen closely, you'll hear someone in the crowd yell out traitor in the middle of Trump's speech, which made Trump chuckle. I chose him, made him vice president, but people, people in politics can be very disloyal. I've never seen anything like it. You know, they asked me a question. They asked me a traitor. He goes, but he could have done what he could have done, right? There's no question. So Pence was in a bind. He was not going to get the votes of Trump loyalists for his so-called betrayal on January 6th, and his efforts to disassociate himself from Trump after four years of unquestioned loyalty never worked. A man of deeply held religious beliefs, he nonetheless stood by Trump and his shenanigans for years until he announced his campaign. In addition, Pence probably would not have qualified for the next debate, scheduled for November 8th. He was not raising the money he needed to be competitive in the race, certainly not enough to meet the criteria for the debate. In reality, he was more of a Reagan Republican than a Trump Republican, but as he learned, as we've all learned, this is Donald Trump's party. Still, you have to wonder about a guy whose former boss egged on the mob that was screaming, hang Mike Pence, during the insurrection at the Capitol, and who nonetheless raised his hand at one of the debates when the candidates were asked if they would support Trump were he to be the nominee while under indictment. And Pence endorsed Congressman Jim Jordan to be the Speaker of the House, even though Jordan was one of the leading election deniers in Congress. Mike Pence's political career began with a successful run for Congress on his third try in 2000, and continued with a winning bid for governor in 2012. He was facing a tough re-election campaign in 2016 when Trump rescued him with his offer to join the ticket. His career may be over, but we may see him again as a key witness against Trump in his effort to remain in power and undermine the 2020 election. A lot has been going on in Congress that has made us dizzy. The Trump veto of Tom Emmer as Speaker and the selection of Mike Johnson, whose comments about the 2020 election, abortion, and gay rights have bordered on the extreme and have alarmed Democrats. Here's an ad from the Republican Accountability Project. Republican Mike Johnson just became Speaker of the House, but he's the last person who should be leading Congress. After Donald Trump lost the election, Johnson started pushing Trump's big lie, pressuring the Supreme Court to overturn the will of voters in four states. And after the January 6th insurrection, Johnson still refused to certify the election results in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Trump wanted to steal your vote. Speaker Johnson helped him. Today's GOP, a danger to our democracy. This week, there was also an attempt by Republicans to expel one of their own, George Santos, who has not been convicted of any crime. 
But the most fascinating thing I've seen in the past week is Senate Republicans finally expressing their frustration and anger at the tactics being used by Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville. With the help of Senate rules, Tuberville has put a hold on all of Biden's military nominees for promotion, close to 400, his reason being to protest Pentagon policy of reimbursing troops who travel out of state to have an abortion. Tuberville refuses to yield on every nomination. President, Senator from Alabama. Object. Object. Madam President, object. The objection is heard. Given what's going on in the Middle East, Republicans have finally had it with Tuberville. Here's South Carolina's Lindsey Graham on the Senate floor addressing the Alabama senator. You've just denied this lady a promotion. You did that. All of us are ready to promote her because she deserves to be promoted. I just hope we don't do this routinely because if this is the norm, who the hell wants to serve in the military when your promotion can be canned based on something you had nothing to do with? She had nothing to do with this. If you think it's illegal, go to court. We have courts in this country. I was Joni Ernst. We have done the best that we can to honor the request of a fellow senator that these nominations be brought to the floor and voted on individually. And I really respect men of their word. I do not respect men who do not honor their word. And Alaska's Dan Sullivan. These are the people who are kicking in doors in Fallujah, shooting terrorists in the face. And we have people saying they're desk jockeys and they're not warriors. That's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's insulting. Democrats are talking about temporarily changing the rules to bypass Tuberville's objections and let the senators vote on the promotions. For it to pass, the motion would need all the Democrats and nine Republicans. For what it sounded like on the Senate floor Wednesday night, they should have the votes. Four years ago, the most unpopular governor in the country was Kentucky Republican Matt Bevin. Despite his strong endorsement by President Trump, despite good numbers on the economy and unemployment, voters just didn't like him, Republicans as well as Democrats. And yet, when it came to the election, Bevin was voted out of office by the narrowest of margins, 5,000 votes out of 1.4 million cast. Every other Republican on the state ticket won easily. But Bevin, after four years of making enemies wherever he went, lost to Democrat Andy Bashir only after a recount confirmed the results. Four years later, it's a different picture. Bashir has become a very successful and popular governor, and he goes into Tuesday's election favorite over Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. What happened? Al Cross is Director Emeritus of the Institute for Rural Journalism and Community Issues, and is a professor in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Kentucky. Before that, he spent more than 26 years as a reporter at the Louisville Courier-Journal, where he was widely acknowledged as the go-to source for political news in Kentucky. 
Well, I'm going to go to him once again. Al, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Great to be with you, Ken. Thank you. Well, four years ago, as I said, Andy Bashir was fortunate to be running against a very unpopular governor. Some said his election was a fluke, but now his numbers are really, really solid. How come? The pandemic. About uh, three months into his governorship, uh, Andy Bashir was uh, sorely tested. And he came through and had the great advantage of appearing in uh, the living rooms or uh, dining rooms or bedrooms of uh, Kentuckians on a daily basis to report on the pandemic and his uh, actions regarding it. It became known as Andy time every afternoon. And in Kentucky, which is divided by 10 media markets, no governor has ever had such an opportunity to become a household word and be called by his first name uh, as Andy Bashir has had. It's fair to say that Bashir has already been a household word because uh, his, go- his father, uh, Steve Bashir, was a former governor. And his father was governor from 2007 to 2015, and uh, Andy Bashir would not have been elected attorney general in 2015 if not for the fact he was Steve Bashir's son, is Steve Bashir's son. Okay, so that was back in 2020 when the when COVID was at its peak. Of of course, it did, it didn't end in 2020, of course. But but having said that, what is he campaigning? What is Bashir campaigning on now? What's the big issue in this campaign? Well, he wants people to be happy with where they are and uh, uh, seeing the state on an upward trajectory. He makes a lot of economic development announcements. Uh, we've had uh, uh, three good years of uh, major plant announcements, the largest investment Ford Motor Company ever made uh, in a couple of battery plants, and uh, lots of other jobs. And while uh, unemployment uh, is low, uh, the uh, number of people working uh, is still uh, not as great uh, as it was at the start of the administration because uh, people just keep dropping out of the workforce, and Cameron is trying to use that against him. But I think generally... Uh, people who are going to vote in this election are fairly happy with the direction of the state, and that sort of works in Bashir's benefit. One of the issues I see that has become a big issue is the issue of education and teachers. Uh, I want to play this Bashir ad right now. I think the Kentucky teachers are heroes. That's why I'm working to increase teacher pay and expand universal pre-K. Daniel Cameron supports voucher programs that send tax dollars to private schools. And he wanted to cut pensions promised to Kentucky teachers. Our teachers are heroes, and public schools are the backbones of our communities. Daniel Cameron's policies would undermine our teachers, our parents, and our public schools. Teachers are the single most important key to Andy Bashir's success. Matt Bevan made them very mad with things he said about them in 2019, and uh, he uh, paid the price. And uh, the teachers remain uh, joined at the hip with Andy Bashir. Uh, his lieutenant governor is an educator. And when you go to the Bashir uh, rallies on the current bus tour, it's clear that uh, the Kentucky Education Association, the teachers union, plays a major role in putting them together. I remember uh, in Virginia uh, when um, Glenn Youngkin was elected governor, he focused also on education and schools and teachers, but his real focus was on parents and parents' rights, and, and Cameron is doing the same thing. 
No such thing as someone else's child. The radical left has declared war on parents, and Andy Bashir is with them. Bashir supports making it easier for children to get abortions without telling their parents. He supports allowing schools to refer children to psychological treatment without telling parents. Bashir even supports allowing school employees to secretly help children change genders without telling their parents. Andy Bashir, putting liberal politics over parents. Well, but Cameron also went to the teachers and said, I apologize for how Matt Bevan treated you. Uh, his wife was once a teacher, and he has other family members in teaching. And uh, he's trying to uh, go after those uh, teacher votes, especially of the Republican teachers. And at this state, about as many teachers are Republicans as Democrats. They abandoned Bevan in uh, 2019, and uh, Cameron is hoping to get uh, a number of them back. I, I don't think we could talk about any campaign in these days without talking about abortion rights. And obviously, it's one of the key issues around the country. Last year, Kentucky voters rejected this ballot measure that would deny constitutional protections for abortion. Uh, and that happened after the Republican legislature imposed these strict anti-abortion policies, which Cameron uh, supported at the time, and maybe he still supports. Is abortion still playing as an issue now? Yes, that's a really important issue, and uh, unbelievably to some people, it's to Bashir's advantage because Cameron in the primary said he opposed the rape and incest exceptions to the near-total ban uh, that we have on abortion, and that is not where most voters are. They want those kind of exceptions, and uh, Bashir has been uh, using that uh, against Cameron to great effect. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. This is the ad that people will remember if they remember any ad from this election. Hadley speaking directly to Cameron and saying, this is for you, Daniel Cameron. Uh, it's an unforgettable message. It is powerful, certainly. Yes, and uh, it shows how the Supreme Court moved the uh, abortion ball to the other side of the field. Uh, Democrats can now play offense if Republicans have painted themselves uh, into what voters see as an extreme corner, uh, opposing the rape and incest exceptions. But But Cameron did say, though, that if a bill came to him as governor that included the uh, the rape and incest uh, exceptions, he would sign it. So he seems yeah, to be trying to have his cake and eat it, too. The legislature is not going to send him such a bill unless he asked for it. Four years ago, Donald Trump was very popular in Kentucky. Uh, I assume he remains so as well. Uh, Joe Biden lost the state handily, and polls show he would lose again. Is, uh, is this playing at all in the governor's race? Cameron's trying to nationalize the race. But he's running against a governor about whom people have made up their minds. And it's pretty hard to uh, paint Andy Bashir with the Joe Biden brush. We talked about the race, and then I think of the word race, given the fact that Daniel Cameron is African-American. Is race an issue in this campaign at all? It hasn't really been much of an issue. There was an African-American group that uh, started some radio ads recently calling him Uncle Daniel because uh, he had... Uh, supposedly not done right in the investigation of uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville that prompted all those protests. 
and uh, uh, a federal trial of uh, an officer who acted uh, recklessly or was charged with acting recklessly uh, outside uh, that raid site uh, is actually beginning this week. Uh, so it's not playing to uh, Cameron's benefit. He really hopes he can uh, win some African-American vote. Uh, he went so far as to uh, uh, use the uh, uh, widely debunked uh, trope about uh, Planned Parenthood being interested in uh, exterminating African-Americans in a statewide debate uh, last week. And uh, he still thinks that, apparently still thinks, that his status as an African-American uh, can win him some black votes. But that remains to be seen because most of the black vote in the state is in uh, Louisville, and that's where Breonna Taylor lived. What would you say is the main case for Bashir's reelection, and what would you and what case is Cameron trying to make? The main case for Bashir's reelection, which he is making, is that uh, you don't fire the coach of a winning team. That we're headed in the right direction, and perhaps the most uh, telling line that Bashir used in one of the debates was. You know who I am. Cameron can try to paint him as uh, Kentucky's version of Joe Biden, but uh, that doesn't really sell all that well. Cameron is trying to turn out his base. If he uh, could consolidate the Republican Trump base and turn them out, uh, he could still win this election. But he appears to be having difficulty doing that with Bashir getting perhaps 15 percent of the Republican vote at this point. Democrats keep talking about how, uh, well, some Democrats keep talking about how the top of the ticket or the leadership of the Democratic Party is is old and they need new new blood. Andy Bashir could fit that role. Do you see, if he should be reelected, do you see a, a possible national role for Andy Bashir? Yes, he could uh, uh, get into national politics uh, as a proven vote getter. Uh, somebody who is uh, uh, a relative moderate in the Democratic Party. Um, he still hasn't said exactly uh, how many weeks into a pregnancy a woman ought to be allowed to have an abortion. He's not uh, going there. Uh, but uh, if he's reelected, the legislature uh, might uh, present him with a bill of that nature, and uh, then we would see. I think that uh, as uh, the Democratic Party looks uh, to uh, uh, appeal to uh, people who go beyond identity politics, uh, Bashir's not a bad guy to look at. You know, a year ago, I would not have really seen him as a potential presidential candidate. Uh, but I think uh, in the last year, he's proven himself to be a very adept politician. And he comes across as being genuine. Uh, that is one of his greatest advantages. Al Cross is Director Emeritus of the Institute for Rural Journalism and Community Issues, a professor in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Kentucky, and a former longtime political reporter at the Louisville Courier-Journal. Al, thanks so much for being on the program. You're welcome, Ken. Good to be with you. Big world I have seen, your majesty. But it's got to be Kentucky for me. Oh, it's got to be Kentucky for me. It's not often that we focus on state legislative races, but there's a lot at stake in Virginia on Tuesday. All 140 seats in the General Assembly are up. Republicans hold the House of Delegates by a narrow 50 to 46 majority. 
with four vacancies. Similarly, it's a narrow margin in the state Senate as well, with Democrats holding 22 seats to 18 for the GOP. Anything could happen. A ton of money is going into these races, and all you have to do is turn on the TV to see where the money is being spent. Democrats are calling their Republican opponents as MAGA and anti-abortion extremists, while GOP candidates are hitting their opposites on crime and parents' rights. But a substory to all this is the political future of Glenn Youngkin, the GOP governor who remains very popular. He is putting his political muscle into the campaign, and some say a solid Republican result could be the impetus to get him into the race for president, as far-fetched an effort as that might appear at this late date. Two months ago, Youngkin's political action committee released this ad, and, you know, I know he's not up for anything this year, and of course he can't succeed himself as governor, but... It sure sounds like he's campaigning for something. With Glenn Youngkin as our governor, we've reawakened the spirit of Virginia. And you can feel it. A spirit of caring, a spirit of accomplishment, and a spirit of togetherness. Governor Youngkin promised a common sense approach in Virginia to lower the cost of living and support our law enforcement. Promised all Virginia's kids a best-in-class education. It's not easy, but with the help of every Virginian, he's working every day to keep that promise and delivering for us. That's the spirit of Virginia. Bob Holsworth is the managing partner at Decide Smart, a strategic solutions firm based in Richmond. Before that, he was the founding director of the Center for Public Policy at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's an expert in Virginia politics, and we're thrilled to have him back on the show. Bob, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Uh, great to be with you, Ken. Great to have you. And so, I mean, anyone who lives in the area surrounding Washington, D.C., can't turn on the TV without being bombarded with ads for candidates uh, for, the gen- uh, for the General Assembly. Uh, tell me what's at stake. Well, I think the stakes are, are, are really high in maybe three or four different ways. First, clearly the partisan control of the General Assembly is, is up, for, up for grabs. Uh, for the last 20 years, with uh, with exception of four years, Virginia's had divided government, uh, governor of one party and the, and the legislature in which at least one chamber was controlled by the other. Um, but if Glenn Youngkin is able to hold the House and flip the Senate, he'll have uh, total control, and that will allow him to uh, implement his agenda in a way that um, he can't do right now. Secondly, of course, Glenn Youngkin's own uh, political aspirations or national political future um, is maybe not on the line, but certainly could be helped if he manages to um, obtain this trifecta in Virginia, winning both chambers and ha- holding the governorship. That would be successful in trend- in taking a blue state and trending it red. So that would actually change the political identity of Virginia and help Glenn Youngkin as he considers uh, his national aspirations, either, either this year or 2028. And then uh, thirdly, for many folks, because Virginia is so close to D.C., this is uh, seen in many in many national circles as the first election of 2024. In particular, uh, what we're going to see is whether the Democrats focus on uh, reproductive rights and abortion still has as much um, – sway as it has in so many special elections over the last year, or whether Glenn Youngkin's effort to say he'd be in favor of a 15-week ban on abortion, uh, with exceptions, 
uh, for rape and incest is a way that the Republicans could um, mute and tamp down uh, the Democratic advantage that they've had in so many special elections recently. Well, there's a lot to chew on there, and I'd like to go through everything because I, I agree this is all what what seems to be at stake here. Let me just start with abortion because once upon a time, you know, when that word was mentioned in the campaign ad, it was often done by an anti-abortion candidate. But but since you know the Dobbs decision, since the 2022 midterm elections, and since voters in many states have passed measures protecting a woman's right to choose. The, the abortion issue seems to be favoring Democrats. And, and you know, ne- nearly every ad I see on TV, and for the record, I live in an area where more liberal and more Democratic ads would be aired, but, but almost every ad is about abortion. Do you, do you see it as a winning theme for Democrats? Well, they hope it certainly is, because it's, it's, it's the theme uh, that, by and large, if you take a look at where the races are competitive in Virginia, they're all in what I would call the suburban, exurban areas. They're not necessarily in the uh, inner metropolitan area, nor are they in the rural area. This election is going to be decided in these suburban, exurban areas. And in every race, the Democratic uh, message is largely um, favoring reproductive rights and that they are going to resist this ban that uh, Youngkin is going to put in. And and very often they don't mention Youngkin's name. They say they're going to resist the ban that the MAGA Republicans are going to put in. So, again, this is uh, the Democrats are looking at what has been successful over the past year. They're thinking that they can continue this. Um, But at the same time, they're up against um, a governor who's relatively popular and who has put all his political capital on the line here. Youngkin is everywhere. He's raised uh, millions of dollars in funds for Republican candidates. And beyond that, he has put his personal prestige on the line. He's out almost every day, every night, campaigning for Republican candidates. And beyond that, he has sent the message out that he really would like to see Republicans use early voting. And from what I'm seeing from um, analysts like Tom Bonnier, he's been somewhat successful. And that's that's never been a Republican theme before, certainly not a Trump theme. No, not at all. Youngkin has pushed it very, very hard. And uh, Bonnier, who is sort of a Democratic-leaning analyst, is basically looking at this early vote and saying this is going to be an extremely close election. Four years ago, with Donald Trump in the White House, Democrats won control of both houses. Does, does President Biden's low numbers, low approval numbers, give Republicans some kind of an advantage on Tuesday? I, I believe so. And it's, it's something that's really been unspoken in Virginia. But Biden's numbers um, cratered in Virginia with the debacle that uh, surrounded the Afghanistan withdrawal in the summer of 2021. It, he was an anchor around the neck of Terry McAuliffe in the uh, 21 gubernatorial election. And the fact that his numbers have not improved in Virginia that he is still at a 39, 40% approval rating, while Youngkin's about 50, 51%, according to some polls, should give the Democrats pause in terms of turnout and enthusiasm. So I don't know whether this is going to be decisive at all, but I do think that here is a state that Biden won by 10 points in 2020, and his, and his numbers are just underwater in Virginia. And and what I've seen, uh, Ken, both nationally and in Virginia, is the Democrats don't even like to admit this. 
you know, they say, well, he's doing all these good things. But at the same time, when you look at what the public thinks of him, it's very, very different. You know, that's that's true nationally. I I keep talking to Democrats who say, look at Biden's record. He's done this and that and this and that. And he has a lot to be proud of. But the, the numbers have not moved at all. And I don't know if people are just so set in their ways that neither side can be budged. But but, you know, you could you could look at what Biden has accomplished. And basically it won't it doesn't matter. It seems to not matter at all when it comes to voters going to the polls. Well, the, the, the difficulty is that it doesn't matter for some Democrats. I mean, they, you know, and his numbers have just never recovered with independents, almost uh, who two thir- probably 80 percent of them think he's too old to be president. They um, they don't give him credit for what he has done well, such as bringing together the Western alliance on Ukraine. And um, that is also true in Virginia. And the real problem, of course, is not only with independents, but it's with uh, Democrats or low propensity voter uh, Democrats who really don't see a reason to come out and vote for him. Now, again, in this election, most of it's taking place in suburban, exurban areas where you have high propensity voters, you have very highly educated voters. I think that Biden won't be as much of a drag as he might be in a statewide race where the Democrats really would need um, in many uh, low-income localities, a very big turnout. Going back to uh, Youngkin's political future, there was there was a report, I guess, about a month ago or so, that that said that um, some Republican heavy hitters, including Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, were, were really wanted Youngkin to get in the presidential contest, and and you know, thus I think a part of the part of the attention on Tuesday's election is that the argument that. A good showing by the GOP would result in a so-called, you know, draft urging him to run. You're no doubt familiar with this argument. Yeah, I think Youngkin right now is the uh, darling of what I call the donor class in the Republican Party. And the second advantage he has is that you have somebody like Rupert Murdoch, um, whose um, you know family has the most important media uh, outlet for Republican candidates. The challenge for Youngkin, however, is twofold. First, he is not very well known outside of Virginia to anybody in the Republican rank and file. And secondly, he ultimately, if he gets in the race now, would have the exact same challenge that every single other Republican candidate has. Other than Trump. Yeah, what's he going to say about Donald Trump? Yeah. Yeah, plus the fact that, you know, some states' primary uh, uh, deadlines like New Hampshire, Nevada, uh, South Carolina, they've already passed. Yeah, he's missed a lot of that. I mean, I, I would think that he's, he's probably better off thinking about 2028 than 2024, because I don't think he is yet to develop a message that is going to carry, you know, to tell people that they ought to switch uh, if they're in the MAGA base, especially if you look at some of these battleground state polls in which Trump, despite all his problems, is doing relatively well against Biden. <laughs> you know, so if that's the case, why is a Republican going to say, well, we need to switch to this guy we never heard of? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, even if a Republican victory doesn't push Yunkin into the race, it would, it would raise his national profile, right? It would, and he might even tell Republicans, as you said earlier, that a more moderate position on abortion, if, if indeed that's what Yunkin is selling, but a more moderate position or maybe one with a smile, it would be more palatable to voters. And also, you know, maybe 
maybe it could be enough to get Youngkin on the twenty four, you know, the twenty twenty four ticket if that's what he wanted. Yeah, I'm not sure he would want to run, uh, you know, with, with Donald Trump. Whether that actually is his best, um, you know, is, is the best thing for him to do. It didn't do but much for it. Didn't do much for Mike Pence, did it? No, no, and it could be a real problem for a guy like Youngkin. But at the same time, what what I'm what I what I am thinking is that if this 15 week ban is successful in um, uh, you know holding off a, a democratic in holding down democratic performance next week, what that what that will mean is you're going to see Republican candidates all over the country adopt what will be called the Yunkin model. Do you have a do you have a gut sense of where things are heading? I think very, very competitive both ways. I mean, I, I could make a case that each side, I could make a case for the Republicans winning both houses, and I could make a case for the Democrats winning both houses. I, I actually think there had been a conventional wisdom the Democrats are going to take the Senate and hold the House, or, or the Republicans would hold the House. I'm not sure about that. I think there, if the Democrats can do well in Northern Virginia, they're going to, they, they will hold the Senate. And if they can do relatively well in Northern Virginia, they have a very good chance of getting at least a split, a 50-50 split in the House. So uh, this, is, this is really an election that's going to test the turnout capacity of both sides. There's a lot of these young kids who are doing these sort of forecasting and modeling, and they're all predicting uh, Democratic sweeps right now. But at the same time, I'm not sure they're taking into account uh, the extraordinary effort that Yunkin has put in and some of the enthusiasm that I'm seeing among uh, Republican voters in uh, for this election. Bob Holdsworth is the managing partner at Decide Smart, a strategic solutions firm based in Richmond. He's also an expert on Virginia politics, as we just heard. Bob, it was great having you on the program. Good to be back with you, Ken. I hope you have a good week. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon.